ETF Prime is hosted by investment advisors at the ETF Store and sponsored by Leg Mason. Leg Mason's sponsorship is not an endorsement nor a recommendation for any product or service. Leg Mason Investor Services LLC is not affiliated with the ETF Store, ETF.com, or any of its affiliates. The ETF Store is not affiliated with ETF.com or any of its affiliates. ETF.com's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF.com of the value of any ETF store product or service. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. All investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The ETF store owns and is responsible for all program content. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Leg Mason is a leading global investment company committed to helping clients reach their financial goals through long-term actively managed strategies. Leg Mason offers a broad range of equity, fixed income, alternative, and cash strategies worldwide. It is comprised of a diverse family of specialized investment managers, each with their own independent approach to research and analysis, and has over a century of experience in identifying opportunities and delivering astute investment solutions to clients. To learn more, please visit LegMason.com. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate and Connor will help you get up to date on what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, we have a really nice show for you today. As always, I want to thank the exclusive sponsor of ETF Prime, Lake Mason. So last week, we saw the single most successful ETF launch of the past 15 years. The X-Trackers MSCI USA ESG Leaders Equity ETF, ticker symbol USSG, that launched on Thursday and essentially took in $850 million overnight. Connor, in a million years, I would have never picked a broad ESG ETF to be this successful, to be the biggest launch of the past 15 years. You know, I think it's been pretty well documented. I've been a bit skeptical of the ESG space, and not because I think companies shouldn't be doing the right things. I just think defining those things and packaging them up into an ETF presents some challenges. Mm -hmm. So I was surprised. Now... We'll get into what happened with this ETF in just a moment with uh, ETF.com's Laura Krigger. There was a bit of a caveat, but $850 million says at least somebody is highly interested in ESG. You know, this was the most successful launch since the Spider Gold shares back in 2004. Which is crazy. GLD. I mean, that, that was a game-changing ETF when it was launched. That was the first opportunity for investors to buy direct, pure exposure of gold that was owned in a vault. You owned the physical gold. So the success of GLD made a ton of sense. And you're right, to see an ESG fund, you know, I mean, listen to the name, right? That was a mouthful. For that thing to have uh, been basically the most successful launch since 2004, yeah, that, that got our attention. And ESG, that stands for Environmental, Social, and Governments. This is basically the moniker that has been adapted adopted in the industry, right, that covers all socially responsible investing, which means a lot of things to a lot of people. And I think you hinted at that, Nate, that that's one of the challenges of ESG investing is it means something different to almost everybody. But this this ETF is 
screening for companies that are, again, quote-unquote, depending on your, your belief, doing the right things as it relates to the environment, uh, social uh, equality, you know, things like gender equality, and then corporate governance. So we'll dig into the details with Laura here, but regardless, this is an impressive launch for an ETF, let alone an ESG-focused one. Well, you know, it was interesting. I noticed this topic of ESG getting a lot more run on social media as well. Mm -hmm. Twitter was lit up in debate over this past weekend. It, It does feel like maybe there's some momentum here. So this will be a fun conversation with Laura. She covers ESG ETFs as well as anyone, anywhere. So we'll talk about that X-Trackers ETF. And then we're also going to more generally discuss ESG ETFs, including fees coming down in this space and some interesting recent fund filings, including one from uh, Alpha Architect. Later, we're going to be joined by Jill Del Signor, head of ETF distribution with J.P. Morgan's asset management business. We're going to look at a couple of their actively managed bond ETFs. But I'm also going to ask her about this ongoing ETF fee war. As it turns out, tomorrow, J.P. Morgan is launching what will be the lowest cost ETF on the market, the Beta Builders U.S. Equity ETF. Now, some, including myself, had speculated this could be free. It will actually launch with a fee of 0.02%, but we're going to get into all of that with uh, Jill as well. And then to close the show today, Jay Jacobs, head of research and strategy at GlobalX, is going to spotlight their suite of covered call ETFs, which, incidentally, these crossed over $500 million in assets last week. And if you're not familiar with a covered call strategy, don't worry. We're going to have Jay walk us through how this works, why you might want to consider a covered call strategy, and where these ETFs fit in a portfolio. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can visit ETFprime.com, or you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci. Let's start today with ETF.com's Laura Krigger. Time now for our weekly chat with the experts at ETF.com, the world's leading independent authority on ETFs. People have been saying there are too many mutual funds since the 80s. For all the talk of smart beta, they haven't pulled in huge assets. The active managers are showing up in the ETF space. Laura, I would have taken the other side of any bet that had an ESG ETF being the single biggest ETF launch in the past 15 years. I, I wouldn't have taken that bet in a million years but that's exactly what happened last week with the X-Trackers MSCI USA ESG Leaders Equity ETF. This thing took in $850 million essentially overnight. Your thoughts, please. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not sure any of us had that on our bingo card for 2019. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think with, there's a lot of things that are, that are interesting to me about this particular launch. Um, I know earlier at the top you mentioned that there was a bit of a caveat, and the caveat is that those $850 million, um, they came from a single source, uh, and that source is a Finnish insurance company named Ilmerinen. Um, they were involved in the creation of the fund. They already used the benchmark on which the fund is based in their own investment strategies, and then they you know, pumped a bunch of money into it. So. Um, this is definitely a bring-your-own-assets kind of, <laughs> of launch here, uh, but we're seeing that a lot in the ETF industry now, right? Like the J.P. Morgan uh, Beta Builders Funds, uh, for example, they're pretty much all bring-your-own-assets at, at this point. So um, I think that's, that's kind of important to know going into the space. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting is that USSG is now also I – mean, 
dirt cheap, right? It's at 10 basis points. Uh, it even undercuts Vanguard's entry into the space. I believe it's the cheapest U.S. equity ESG ETF now and um, ties for the cheapest ESG ETF altogether. So that's also something I don't think any of us were expecting either <laughs> for this huge fund to just kind of overnight show up with a price tag even undercutting Vanguard. Um, so, but to me, you know, somebody who's watching this space for a while, uh, you know, who covers it day in and day out, what makes this launch so interesting to me is that USSG isn't a quote-unquote cool kind of product. Like, it's not, it doesn't have bells and whistles. Uh, it's not any sort of, you know, fascinating theme or whatnot. It's kind of just a boring fund. So, no, um, you're right. I mean, it is. It's it's more broad based. Uh, a, another interesting stat that I saw was this became the third largest ESG ETF overnight, uh, behind the okay. iShares uh, KLD 400 social ETF and the iShares uh, ESG Select ETF. And this also increased overall ESG ETF assets by 10 percent plus, which is pretty remarkable. You know, given that uh, this pension insurance company uh, Ilmarinen brought these assets. Do you think that tells us anything about the future path to success for ESG ETFs, that maybe it needs to be institutions driving this and then retail investors uh, will will hop on board? Oh, my gosh. I absolutely agree. I think if ESG is going to take off, it has to come first from the institutional side of things and then retail will follow wherever institutions go. And that's sort of the success story of ETFs in general, right? So ETFs began as an institutional trading tool, and then they found wider adoption in retail audiences and and so on and so forth. So I think if we're going to see ESG take off, it has to be from institutional investors first. And that's sort of what we're seeing now, I think. Um, We're seeing, at least in the last month or so, there have been about a billion the billion point two um, thereabouts of inflows into ESG ETFs, not just the USSG fund, but also the Vanguard funds, uh, Leg Mason's ESG ETF had a, a fair bit of infusion of cash as well. Um, the, the ESG ETFs are a fair bit of inflows just in the past few weeks. And uh, so I, I, I think... Mm-hmm. I'm being cautious here for a reason. So, yes, I do think ESG is a trend is starting to gain momentum, but we do need to keep these inflows in perspective, right? And the reason we have to keep them in perspective is because we've seen institutions make these huge $100 million moves before into ESG, and then they've sort of not become anything. You know, nothing has come out of it. Well, and also, interestingly, I, I know yesterday Goldman Sachs pulled its seed capital from the Goldman Sachs Just U.S. Large Cap, uh, large cap Equity ETF, uh, you know, chopped the assets in half. But, you know, if as I look right. at the, the overall space, you had $850 million into this X-Trackers ETF. Uh, to your point, Bloomberg reported last week that that Vanguard ESG U.S. stock ETF recently took in over $100 million, uh, which had been the largest single inflow into any ESG ETF since June of last year. So I, I, I hear you, you know, in terms of being cautious, but it does seem like there's some momentum here. 
you know, over the weekend I saw a tweet from uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy where he said in conversations he's having, it felt like ESG was moving from all talk to perhaps some real action now and fast. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, do you think the moment for ESG is finally arriving? Isn't this funny, this role reversal we have? Usually I'm the one who's <laughs> saying that the momentum is here. And you're the one who's like pushing the brakes here. Uh, yeah, I, I do think that we could be seeing the beginning of the snowball rolling down the hill and becoming an avalanche. Uh, I think USSG's inflows are interesting. I think they matter. I think Vanguard's flows matter. Uh, but I wouldn't draw too much conclusion. What I think is more interesting and more uh, bellwether of what may or may not be going on in ESG space is what's happening in this fund, uh, an iShares fund, iShares, ESG, MSCI, EFA ETF, and the ticker for that is ESGD. And what's neat about this fund is that it hasn't had the big inflows of that Vanguard funds or USSG has had, uh, but quietly, every two or three weeks for the past year or so, it has been getting an infusion of about 20 to $30 million regularly, like every two or three weeks. And I didn't even know this was happening until I started looking at the flows. Uh, quietly, ESG, ESGD has gone from this teeny little fund with about $100 million in, infl- or, uh, in assets to the fourth biggest ESG fund in the space. And so I think that is going to be a bellwether of how ESG grows if and when it grows. Like, it's not going to be these big 200 million here, 100 million here, inflows, so on and so forth. It's going to be slow and steady, and it's going to be gradual, and we're not even going to know it's happening until it happens. What about the the role of cost here? So we mentioned the 10 basis point fee on the new X-Trackers ETF uh, that did undercut the Vanguard ESG ETF by two basis points. I know back in February, you put together the world's cheapest ESG ETF portfolio. So this was six ETFs covering U.S. and international stocks, bonds. Uh, you even had REITs and commodities in there. And that came in at less than 17 basis points overall. I, I guess the question is, is the fee barrier now being removed from ESG? I think it is. Um, so we've talked about this before. I believe that ESG investors uh, have a higher threshold when it comes to cost. Uh, they certainly don't want to pay money that they don't want, that they don't have to, right? But people are willing to sacrifice a little bit more on expenses than, than maybe in other areas so that they can invest according to their principles, Um but, yes, these do matter. I, I ran the numbers, again, for the cheapest ESG ETF portfolio. Uh, with these new funds in place, with the X-Tracker funds, uh, the, the, the broad six-fund portfolio is now down under 16 basis points, and the 60-40 version is down uh, below 12 basis points. So that's a full basis point off each of the, the models. Um, I it's just going to keep on coming down, you know, as more more funds come into the space and more people try to undercut each other. So uh, Laura, I'm excited for that. Laura, it's Connor. Uh, looking at this ESGD fund, it looks like it launched back uh, summer 2016, so approaching its three-year mark. And, and that's a significant deal in terms of performance. You know, I, I think one of the real things 
and that we've heard perhaps from clients and other advisors um, is there's a wait and see approach from investors in the ESG space that, you know, yeah, I would love to support companies that are, you know, again, everybody's definition is different, but quote unquote, doing the right thing. But I also, we're all investing to make money and make as good a returns as possible. Do you think getting, you know, these three and eventually five year track records is going to, you know, spell a meaningful change in investors considering these ESG ETFs? That is such a good point. It's true. I think it will. And there are some advisors who won't even look at funds that don't have that sort of track record. They're not allowed to, right? Mm -hmm. They have this investment mandate in place that says you have to have a track record of a year, a three years, five years, whatever. Um, So the longer these funds continue to be on the market and perform the way that they say they're going to perform, I mean, it's only going to be good, right, in terms of adoption. So uh, one of the things that I think is so interesting about USSG specifically and the funds that are taking off with advisors is that they aren't thematic. They're these broad-based market-replicating funds that you can use uh, to replace some or all of the vanilla funds in your asset allocation. So when you um, get these funds with a long enough track record, too, uh, you know, that's just one more barrier um, that comes down in terms of of adopting them in in asset allocation strategies. And so, yeah, I think we're going to see more and more of these boring uh, market performance style funds uh, take off. Laura, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, We are out of time. I know this isn't our last conversation on ESG. I I probably said that every time we we talk about this subject, but pretty remarkable to see $850 million into one ETF basically uh, overnight. This is going to be a fun space to watch moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. That was ETF.com's Laura Krigger. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by J.P. Morgan's Jill Delsignor. We're going to look at a couple of their actively managed bond ETFs, and I'm also going to get Jill's thoughts on this ongoing ETF fee war. You're listening to ETF Prime. Welcome back to ETF Prime. We are now very pleased to be joined by Jill Del Signor, head of ETF distribution with JP Morgan's asset management business. JP Morgan currently offers 34 ETFs with nearly $21 billion in assets. And their ETF business really took off last year. About 16 of that $21 billion came in during 2018. They actually finished in the top four of ETF flows overall. And what I think is unique about J.P. Morgan is they offer some of the more plain vanilla exposure through their beta builders lineup, but then they're leveraging extensive resources on the active side as well with their actively managed bond ETFs and various hedge fund strategy ETFs. And then you add to all that, 
J.P. Morgan has distribution. They can get their ETFs out through their wealth and portfolio management channels. They're really uniquely positioned in the ETF space. Jill is now joining us via phone from Chicago. Jill, a pleasure having you back on the show. Nate, thank you so much for having me. I'm going to apologize for my voice in advance. I, uh, I'm coming down with a bit of a cold, but I'm going to do my best with you this morning. Thanks for having me back on. It was great to meet you in person down in Florida, too. No, pleasure meeting you in person as, as well, and uh, hopefully we can make it through uh, this interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll, so, be, we'll be good. I haven't talked much this morning yet. <laughs> well, look, before we talk J.P. Morgan ETFs, I did want to ask you, I saw last week Women in ETFs, which is an organization you are co-president of, they rang the opening bell at IEX, the New York Stock Exchange, I think several other exchanges as well, in celebration of International Women's Day and promoting gender equality. If you don't mind, I'd love to hear more about that and perhaps some background on women in ETFs. Absolutely. Um, it's it's an organization I am so proud um, to be uh, able to represent, to lead, and to have been involved since the very beginning. So you mentioned the, the bell rings. It's something we've done now for five years. Um, we started just with what at the time seemed big, but but now when you think about the fact that this year we did over 80 bells around the globe, you know, in our first year we did just around 10 to 12 bells. And so we've really grown in an effort to, to, to really bring a light on to gender uh, inequality and, and see what we can do to try to help change that. Now, the organization, you know, like I mentioned, I was one of the original members back. We just celebrated our five-year anniversary. In fact, when you and I ran into one another in Florida, it was right after we were hosting our five-year anniversary breakfast, which we do every year um, at Inside ETFs, uh, thanks to the partnership of Inside ETFs. Um, and, you know, we originally looked at as a way to connect the industry. You know, some of us that were there at the beginning were involved in other um, organizations within financial services, whether it was 100 women in hedge funds or, um, you know, other financial services organizations. But there was nothing that we could find within the ETF industry. And so we got together and started to think, how, how is there a way that we can kick this off? And so at Inside ETF, uh, back in 2014, we actually hosted a breakfast with less than 100 women and actually two men <laughs> um, at that conference. And now I'm proud to say that membership has crossed nearly 5,000 women and men across the globe. Um, and this year's breakfast last month, um, which I had the honor of kicking off, had over 400 women and about, uh, I'm sorry, 300 women and about 100 men. Um, so it's been really exciting to see the growth of the organization. Jill, I'm curious from your perspective, how big of an issue is uh, gender inequality in the asset management and, and I guess the overall financial services space? Yeah, so it, I'll speak more broadly. I, I came across some statistics. Um, in preparation for hosting the IEX Bell on Friday. Um, and there were some stats that, that were a little bit eye-opening, a lot of eye-opening to me, frankly, and that's that we actually had lost ground last year, um, dropping 25% in the number of female CEOs that we have at Fortune 500 companies. You know, at this rate, broadly speaking, it won't be for over 100 years that we actually close the gender gap. Um, another stat that got me was that women have as much access to financial services as men in only 60% of the countries around the world. So we have a lot of work to do. But if we take a, a, a light and we shine it on the ETF industry specifically, um, which is what we're, we're doing within women in ETFs, we actually do see a significant number of women in leadership roles um, within our specific industry. If you think about it, uh, as the industry has grown over the last decade, two decades, 
there have been women that have come in and been able to grow up with the industry and as a result have been able to take on leadership roles. Myself, as a, you know, a, a prime example, as the industry has grown, I have grown with it over the last decade and been able to now be in a leadership role. Um, and it's been exciting to see my peers do the same. Um, but one thing that, that's interesting and um, we're trying to address is that one thing we did we did recognize as a gap, despite the women in leadership um, and broadly in the industry, frankly, within ETF, there was an underrepresentation of women on panels. At this, I know you moderated down at Inside ETF. There was a broad underrepresentation on panels and in speaking positions at major industry conferences. So about a year ago, we, we launched the Speakers Bureau. And so we're working with Inside ETF, IMN, Morningstar, to try to solve for that. And we have a very, I think, um, novel goal of getting to a 25% representation um, by women on panels at these industry conferences by next year, by 2020. So hopefully by the time I see you next year in Florida, um, we'll have exceeded that goal. Yeah, what a fantastic organization. If people want to learn more about this or getting involved, uh, where, where should they go? Definitely. It's womeninetf.com, and we have chapters all over the world um, here in the U.S., um, which I imagine most of your audience is, is from. We have chapters um, from the West Coast in San Francisco, Denver, uh, Chicago, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., New York, and Boston. Our guest is Jill Del Signore, head of ETF distribution with J.P. Morgan's asset management business. All right, Jill, so we're going to look at a couple of uh, J.P. Morgan bond ETFs today. And let's start with the J.P. Morgan Core Plus bond ETF, ticker symbol JCPB. This just launched at the end of January. It is actively managed. What was the rationale behind launching this ETF? And then tell us what the investment goal is here. Yeah, so one of the key tenants, if we sort of take a step back and look from a sort of a 20,000-foot view of J.P. Morgan's product development strategy. I think you did such an excellent job, thank you, on the front end, sort of introducing what we're doing. You know, we've been really proud of the fact that we've been able to build out a lineup that leverages existing J.P. Morgan capabilities, even down to our beta builder suite. We have enormous capability within market cap-weighted beta uh, index management at J.P. Morgan, although most folks don't don't know that. Um, So we've built it out across equities, fixed income, and alternatives, and then across um, factor-based, purely active, and purely indexed. Uh, and one of the things we're trying to do, and one of the key tenants around that strategy, is to provide choice to ETF investors. And one area where we see and continue to see um, room for more choice is in fixed income. So if we look at JCPB specifically, it's about how the ag has changed. And we can apply that to some other products in our fixed income lineup, but in, in, uh, specifically at JCPB, if you look at the ag, right, I think a lot of folks haven't recognized how the ag has changed. You know, it's a rules-based index, as, as, as most of us know, um, and it's based on the amount of debt an issuer has. So the more indebted the borrower, the higher the weighting they have in the index, very similar to what we see with market cap weighting in equities. Well, with quantitative easing, it's influenced debt issuance um, and, and, frankly, weakened the ag's risk return profile, leaving it really concentrated in U.S. Treasuries and, frankly, less diversified across sectors and more sensitive to rising rates. Um, so in conversations with clients, many have been reassessing you know, how they close, how closely they're going to tie themselves to fixed income. Uh, I'm sorry, how closely they're going to tie their fixed income assets to the ag. Um, and they're really looking to alternatives to loosen those constraints 
and allow for more flexibility. And so JCPB has been a great solution to that, as has JPSC, which I, I think we'll talk about shortly. Um, but if you look at JCPB, you know, it's an ETF, actively managed ETF, to your point, that's managed by our GFIC team, so Global Fixed Income Currency and Commodity Team. That is a very broad platform that manages nearly a half a trillion dollars in assets. And so we're leveraging that platform, that vertical, that's over almost 300 you know, investment professionals across the world. They manage a similar portfolio that has a 26-year track record. So to be able to take that, leverage that expertise, and bring it into the ETF industry, it's a way that we can show how we're able to bring J.P. Morgan's expertise, proven expertise, into the ETF industry. Um, so it's a way for our, our investors, our clients, who are looking for a way to look outside of the ag, um, to combine kind of this research-driven security selection process, um, bottom-up, if you will, with a top-down macro overlay to give them a very diversified portfolio across sectors, durations, yield curves, et cetera. Um, so we're excited to be able to bring that to the industry, um, like you said, it launched at the end of January. Jill, you mentioned JPST, which is the ultra-short income ETF. This is approaching $6 billion in assets. It's been a huge success story. Uh, This one, as you mentioned, is also actively managed. Tell us more about that ETF. Yeah, you know, we are so excited. People talk about, you talked about at the beginning of the the podcast, the success we had last year. And I'm so excited that we were able to have that success across the platform, right, in our in our factor-based products, in active fixed income, and in beta builders. And with an active fixed income, it was so driven by JPST. Um, so we raised the fund launched in May of 2017, so not even two years old. And during the course of last year, raised over $5 billion in assets. Um, this is similar story to what I just talked about with JCPB, leveraging an existing vertical at J.P. Morgan. So we have a $600 billion global liquidity team, and we were able to leverage them to manage this portfolio. If you look in the industry, a lot of folks are using a kind of a bond team to come down the curve and manage um, these ultra-short products. We instead are taking a global liquidity team and having them come out a little bit to manage this portfolio. So it's been an incredibly um, exciting story for us, particularly as our clients, anecdotally in conversations, are saying they want to look at options to bring in duration. And so it's been a terrific solution for all sorts of investors. As you can appreciate, Nate, you know, products start off and you sort of have the retail audience that are, buy- that, that are buying them and they start to get size and then they become very interesting to institutions. And that's exactly what we've seen with JPST, where it started off as a retail solution and it main- remains a-, a huge retail solution, but we've had more and more institutional investors come into the product as well, which is exciting for us and has continued to accelerate the growth. Jill, as I know you're well aware, uh, for better or worse, we continue to see this active versus passive debate uh, continue to rage on, right? And the track record for active, I would say, hasn't been great on the equity side. It has been better in fixed income. Any additional thoughts here for an investor trying to decide between active and passive strategies in their bond portfolios? You, you mentioned some of the potential limitations of the ag, but, but any further thoughts on, on active versus passive? Yeah, I think for us, it's not about active or passive. It's about active and passive, right? And what is that, what is that client trying to achieve? I think there's options across the spectrum. But if we were to look at active fixed income in the ETF wrapper specifically, I think to your to your point, we haven't seen as much success. Just I think primarily due to lack of product, right, in active equity, and that landscape could change, you know, over the course of of, uh, of time. But right now, if you look at the landscape uh, of the active management in fixed income, 
we've seen strong demand for active, fixed, active management and fixed income because it's been shown in a lot of cases that managers can outperform. There's over $3 trillion in active strategies across ETFs and mutual funds. Obviously, the bulk of that is in mutual funds. There's $1.2 trillion in passive or debtor-weighted, you know, the ag, if you will, debtor-weighted equity, or I'm sorry, fixed income indexes. And ETFs have been the beneficiary of the bulk of those passive flows, primarily because of the limited active options. And so that's changing. Um, and even if you just point to last year at the success that we've seen across active ETFs, obviously JPST contributing meaningfully to that, I think we're going to continue to see that as we see more and more product come into that space because investors have been telling us via their flows that they do like active management and fixed income. There's just been a lack of choice. So we kind of go back to the beginning where we started, and I said we're looking to really fill white space where we see opportunity to provide more choice. And putting the active versus passive debate aside, what do you think are some of the most important considerations right now for investors uh, in in terms of managing their bond portfolio, just as you look at the overall uh, bond environment right now? Yeah. So we actually, in an effort to help advisors have a really simple framework to how to think about fixed income portfolio construction, because we know it can be really challenging, especially in environments like this one. Um, we, we worked years ago to create a simple framework for fixed income portfolio construction. We, just, we call it the fixed income triangle, um, and it really has three parts. You have the, the core strategies, which you know, kind of give you dura- duration exposure and help insulate a portfolio from equity pullbacks. Think about in the context of this conversation, JCPB. We have the core complement strategies, so those are designed to mitigate inflation risk. Um, think JPST in, in this conversation. And then extended sector strategies, and we didn't talk about any in, in the course of our conversation yet today, but that's strategies that are reaching for more total returns. Think high-yield emerging market debt. In the case of JP Morgan, we have our Global Bond Opportunity Fund as example. Um, and so we work with clients to really understand, based on what they're trying to achieve for their clients, what they should be investing in across all of those pieces of the triangle so that they can overweight or underweight really what they're trying to do in a portfolio. And taking it a step further, we actually have a team here at the firm called our Portfolio Insights Team. And we work, whether it's just on fixed income portfolios or broadly an entire portfolio for, for advisors, to take a look and do a diagnostic of their portfolio to say, all right, you're overweighted to high yield or you're overweighted, in the case of equities, you're overweighted to the quality factor or the momentum factor and what would happen if we were to add this ETF or that fund. And so it really allows us to have a robust discussion with our clients about what's going to be the best portfolio for them and what they're trying to build for their clients. All right, Joe, we have about two minutes left and switching gears a bit. I have to ask you, uh, and you probably know this is coming, but <laughs> tomorrow J.P. Morgan is launching the Beta Builders U.S. Equity ETF, ticker symbol BBUS. This will be the lowest cost ETF on the market, two basis points. Now, there had been some speculation this could be launched with a zero fee. And I know you can't comment on this until after the launch, but I, I guess I'd just love to hear your thoughts on the overall fee landscape right now. We continue to see ETF fee cuts. We did see uh, filings for zero-fee ETFs after waivers from another provider. That was a couple of weeks ago. We're seeing more commission-free ETF trading. How do you view all this from your perch? Absolutely. So, you know, fee pressure continues in our industry, right? Um, They continue to get driven down. Um, Clearly, we are um, bringing 
products to, to market that are uh, lower cost, we believe competitively priced for the exposure that they're providing. Um, and that's not exclusive to um, to the beta builders. Right? We have single factors that, that are offered at 12 basis points and JPST at 18. So um, we certainly understand that fee, fees matter to our clients. And at the end of the day, lower fees translate to better outcomes for our clients. And so we understand that providing inexpensive building blocks, whether that's beta builders or JPSC, the single factors, you know, a whole suite of products across our lineup are important. And we want to continue to try to meet that client demand. So to your point, you know, I'm not involved in pricing decisions and I, you can't speak prior to the fund being, being launched. So I can't really comment on how we end up there. Um, but I do know that we're incredibly excited to be able to provide these types of exposures to our clients at very competitive costs. Well, Joe, with that, we'll have to leave it there. Always a pleasure. Re- really appreciated your time today. Thank you. Absolutely, Nate. Thank you so much. That was Jill Del Signore, head of ETF distribution with J.P. Morgan's asset management business. And you can learn more about the entire J.P. Morgan ETF lineup by visiting jpmorgan.com slash ETFs. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we're going to dive into an interesting investment strategy, a covered call strategy. We'll be joined by Global X's Jay Jacobs. This is ETF Prime. Welcome back to ETF Prime, Nate and Connor in studio. Now it's time for our ETF Spotlight. It's time for the ETF Spotlight, where each week we highlight one exchange-traded fund. There are thousands of ETFs available to invest in. ETF Prime has sorted through them all, so you don't have to. The ETF we're spotlighting this week is the Global X NASDAQ 100 Covered Call ETF, ticker symbol QYLD. And joining us via phone from New York to discuss this ETF is Jay Jacobs, Head of Research and Strategy at Global X. Jay, always great having you on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Jay, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this ETF, I do think it would be helpful to have you explain what a call writing strategy is and what it means to write a covered call. So let's maybe start there. How, how do you like to explain this? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, this is, this is getting into kind of options 101, but, uh, you know, essentially a covered call is when you own an underlying security. In the case of QILD, it's owning the underlying securities of the NASDAQ 100, and then you write a call option on top of it. So when you write a call option, you're receiving a premium associated with writing that call option, but you're giving up the upside of that option. You owe the buyer of that option, you know, any, you know, kind of appreciation above the strike price. Now, the reason why it's called a covered call is because if you're just writing what's called a naked option, if you're writing the call without, un- uh, without owning the underlying security, you would have, you know, a ton of risk and exposure to the security's upside because you're, you owe that to the buyer of that option. But because you own the underlying security, you're effectively hedged where the security appreciates while the option loses value, and so you're capturing just the premium associated with that. All right, so now if we look at the ETF, again, the Global X NASDAQ 100 covered call ETF, this is obviously writing call options on the NASDAQ 100. Give us some additional details here. How exactly is this structured? 
Yeah, sure. So you know, it's 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 fairly straightforward as far as uh, you know an option-based strategy goes. We we buy the holdings of the Nasdaq 100, so you know many of the tech names that people are familiar with, and we own it in the proportion of the Nasdaq 100. But then on top of that, on a monthly basis, uh, we're writing an index option on the Nasdaq 100 index. So just like you can buy and sell options on individual securities you can buy and sell options on entire indexes. So in this case, we just write one option, which is on the NASDAQ 100. We collect the premium from that. We own the option through the duration of that month, and then it's closed out at the end of the month, and then we write a new one for the next month. So we're continuously rolling those options to collect the premium from that covered call strategy. And these options are sold at the money. Is that correct? That's correct. So you know you can you can choose how much exposure to uh, to the upside you you want when you write an option. Uh, effectively, uh, we're we're writing this at the money. So so the current price on the Nasdaq 100 is also the strike price of the option, which means you give up all of the upside on the appreciation of the Nasdaq 100. But in exchange, you get uh, really a lot of option premium from writing something at the money. The further out of the money you write the option, the less the premium is. So this kind of is a what I would consider kind of a option premium maximizing strategy. Any particular reason why the NASDAQ 100 index? I know we'll talk about your S&P 500 cover call ETF here in a moment, but why the NASDAQ versus some other index? Yeah, sure. So, you know, when you look at uh, index-based covered call strategies, you know, they tend to kind of gravitate towards the bigger indexes that people are familiar with, one, because of that familiarity, but two, because uh, having the ability to, to write an option on the index instead of all of the underlying 100 names is, is a big advantage and, and reduces a lot of transaction costs. You know, why would someone look at the NASDAQ 100 versus the S&P 500? Um, I think there's two reasons. So one is, the NASDAQ 100 historically has had higher volatility than the S&P 500. More volatility translates into a higher option premium. If you go to the Black-Scholes you know, options model, we don't have to get too much in the math. But if you remember, that's based off of the current price of the security, the strike price, the risk-free rate, the time until expiration, and volatility. And if you think about each of those factors, because we're writing something at the money, the current price and the strike price are the same. The time is always a month because that's what we're writing. The risk-free rate doesn't change a lot, uh, depending on your view of the Fed, but volatility does change a lot. So writing an option on a higher volatility index is going to generate more premium. Um, the second reason why you know, we think this is an interesting index uh, to use in a covered call strategy is you know, covered calls are a way of, of generating income for a portfolio. You're, you know, you're giving up upside participation in exchange for the income from an option premium, and when you think about income portfolios, they are often very underexposed to the technology sector. You know, if you buy a dividend fund, it's going to have utilities, real estate, consumer staples. It very rarely has tech stocks. And so this is a way to have kind of the tech risk in our income portfolio, but to generate income on top of that. So we see it as a very nice diversifier for an income-based portfolio. And Jay, can you give us an idea as to what that income looks like uh, maybe right now? Yeah, sure. So if you, uh, so I'll separate two things. One is how much premium are we receiving from writing an option on the NASDAQ 100 at the money? So historically, that number has ranged, you know, anywhere from kind of the one and a half percent to most recently in January to about four and a half percent. That's on a monthly basis. 
However, uh, that's, to, that, that's the premium you receive upfront from writing that option. Of course, if the NASDAQ goes on a tear, the option actually, actually ends up in kind of negative value, but we've covered that from owning the underlying securities. Um, so net-net, you, you see a lot of volatility in the premium you receive from writing these options. Uh, if you look at the last 12 months or so, uh, the, the, the distribution yield on this fund has been roughly around 10%, though, because that's, uh, that's, that's from distributing uh, about half of the option premium that we receive. The other half of that is retained by the fund um, to help uh, kind of build um, uh, to help build the NAV if there's any uh, pullbacks in the in the share price of the Nasdaq 100. All right, so I always think a good way to explain a strategy like this is to walk through some different market scenarios. And you began alluding to this a bit earlier, but let's just say the Nasdaq goes up over the course of a month. Investors will collect their premium from writing the calls but they won't participate in the upside gains, correct? That's exactly correct. Yep. So if you wrote an option and received a 2% premium uh, on that option and the NASDAQ went up 10%, this fund would only be up 2% in that scenario. All right. And then to be clear, what happens if the market goes down? Sure. So if you want to flip it on on its head and say, you know, you got that 2% premium, but the NASDAQ was down 10%, uh, this fund would be expected to be down about 8% because you're netting uh, those losses against the option premium you receive. So actually in a down market, you would expect this to slightly outperform the broader index. The the other thing I would add is in down markets, you tend to see volatility pick up. So remember, volatility is a huge component of how much premium you receive on these options. In a higher volatility market, the value of, that op- the, value of the options you're writing tends to increase. So maybe if that volatility picks up, for a few months in a row, you know, maybe the first option got you 2% premium. Maybe by the second month or third month, you're looking at 3 or 4% premium. So we see it as a little bit of a hedge against riskier markets. Jay, if I just think about this high level, it does seem like you have limited upside in that you only collect the premiums, but you have at least the potential for a lot of downside, right? Let's say the market went down significantly over the course of a month. I guess the question is, how do you frame that in terms uh, of the risk reward of owning this in a portfolio. Yeah, so it's uh, so yeah, it's a great question. So when you look at this within a portfolio, it you know, the, the it's sort of a hybrid between equity risk and something a little bit more fixed income e. Um because you are going to have that similar downside participation, but you're giving up that upside for uh for that option premium. Now, the difference is there's a lot of volatility to the upside and the downside of any of any index. Um, what you're doing when you sell an option is you you're replacing that upside with kind of a current premium. While that premium can be fairly volatile, it generally is trading within kind of a more similar band than the range of outcomes you could see on the upside on an index. So, um, you know, if you just kind of plotted out the Nasdaq 100 and all of its different up months. You know, there's, there's a huge range of months where it's on a tear, months where it's pretty flat, and months where it's down. This gives you a little bit more kind of control over that exposure because you're collecting that premium every month. So, um, you know, over the long run, what you see is uh, while you do participate on the downside, having a little bit more consistency on that option premium uh, can actually help a lot with those risk-adjusted returns. Yeah, and to your point, having that, that premium coming in, that does offer some buffer to the downside as well. Uh, now, I mentioned GlobalX also offers the S&P 500 cover call ETF, ticker HSPX. Anything different here besides the underlying index? 
Well, the biggest difference on this one is that the option is written 2% out of the money. So uh, what that means is you get less option premium because it's out of the money, but you do get more upside. So in, in kind of a theoretical sense, um, you would participate up to 2% in, in any given month in the S&P. So if the S&P is up 4%, you would participate in the first 2% in that month plus the option premium that you received. So that's a little bit more of kind of a growth plus income play, whereas QYLD is really much more focused on, on just the income aspect. We have about three minutes left. What, what do you see as the potential benefits of accessing a cover call strategy in an ETF wrapper versus an investor just trying to do this on their own? Yeah, well, the, the challenge for investors is that, you know, the option market is a little bit of a different animal from, you know, the traditional equity markets. The way that options are priced is, is obviously quite different. The way they trade is a little bit different. And given that we're doing monthly options, there's a significant amount of work that goes into, you know, opening and closing those options each month. So, you know, for investors that want to have more of a hands-off approach, they're not looking to uh, become familiar with trading options and have to trade them every month. Uh, you know, the ETF is, is a great way of just kind of getting that strategy wrapped into, you know, a single ticker um, that they don't really have to think about trading on a regular basis. Jay, lastly, while we have you on the line, you know, we've spent a lot of time over the past several weeks discussing this uh, overall downward pressure on fees, right? It seems like the quote-unquote fee war has reignited recently, more so in the plain vanilla ETF space. But obviously, fees matter uh, everywhere. I, I know Global X tends to focus more on thematic ETFs and certainly unique strategies like the ones we've, we've spotlighted today. But any thoughts on ETF fees, just this relentless pressure that's out there right now? Yeah, well, you know, when you look at fee compression, I think it's being driven by, by two major things. One is the costs of running an ETF are lower. So, you know, companies, ETF issuers can uh, can create ETFs with lower management fees than ever before because they've figured out how to make a lot of variable costs fixed uh, because there's been pressure on a lot of the service providers in the ETF industry to lower costs as well. So I think that's one of the big drivers that the end investor doesn't see, but it helps the economics of, of an ETF issuer. The second thing is, you know, when you launch an ETF, uh, it's, you know, there's, there's very little certainty uh, that you're going to be successful in, in launching that ETF. And so a lot of managers have entered into the smart beta space. People have entered into the currency hedge space. More recently, a lot of people are getting into the thematic space. They're trying their hand at a lot of different areas. The area that probably has the best track record for launching a successful ETF is just competing on price. And so, you know, it's a, it's a form of innovation, and it's, a, and it's a way for a lot of issuers to make a lot of noise in the ETF industry that's, that's historically been pretty successful. So if it's, if it's successful, they're going to keep trying until it, in, until it doesn't work anymore. Well, Jay, great spotlight today. Uh, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That was Jay Jacobs, Head of Research and Strategy at GlobalX. And you can learn more about GlobalX's ETF lineup by visiting GlobalXFunds.com. That'll do it for today's show. I want to thank our exclusive sponsor, Leg Mason. You can visit LegMason.com to learn more about their broad range of investment strategies. Podcasts of ETF Prime are available at ETFPrime.com, ETF.com, iTunes, and Spotify. You can follow me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci. Next week, two great guests will first be joined by Sal Bruno, Chief Investment Officer at Index IQ. We'll talk alternative ETFs. Index IQ actually offers the two biggest ETFs in the space, including their hedge fund replication ETF, Q, uh, QAI. And then Jeremy Held, Senior Vice President and Director of Research at Alps Advisors, is going to spotlight the Alarian MLP ETF. 
Until then, have a great week, everyone. 